As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we scratch the soccer riches you never knew you had. Today, we're looking at soccer team org charts. What does a team's front office typically look like? How many people on the sporting and non-sporting side does it take to make a big club function or be dysfunctional in the case of certain Spanish clubs that rhyme with Schmarcelona, am I right? My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, we have Taylor Rockwell. Hello. We also have Graham Rutherford. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ryan Bailey. How are you doing, gents? Let's talk about some front office. Um, I think, Graham, should we start off by maybe defining the term front office? And mm. I wonder, is there a UK or European equivalent? Will we just call that upstairs? Because I don't think front office yeah. is in European parlance, is it? Yeah, so the, so the term front office typically refers to the management of the team and uh, they are the, they are the ones who generally have the most control and power and they're the ones who can pull the levers that can actually make a difference whether that's in the performances of the team on the pitch or the identity of the club or the commercial side of the club and I do find as you referenced there Ryan I find that the term is generally used in American soccer and American sports it's not a term that I grew up with certainly it's something that I've become familiar with in, in the last kind of five years. It's, it's fairly recently that I've, I've started to use this term. But as the sport is becoming more modern and clubs are building out their staff, it's becoming more and more common across the sport, not just to have a large front office in, in British soccer and European soccer, but also that term, front office. I think most football football fans in the UK would probably recognise what you were talking about when, when if you said front office now in 2022, whereas, as I say, five years ago, maybe 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 that wasn't the case but it, it's something that has kind of always been there at clubs it's just becoming more of a focus for fans it used to be the fans used to talk about what's happening on the pitch and now maybe thanks to social media there's a lot more threads of discussion and they will maybe focus on what's happening upstairs as, as you said Ryan indeed Taylor looking at front offices and perhaps in other sports as well do you get the impression that it's vital to have a good front office structure and set up to have a successful team on the field can you have one without the other I don't think so. I think at the very least you can't have the successful uh, on-field performance for a consistent amount of time. Maybe you can get lucky and things fall into place or have a, a particularly good manager, but oftentimes I think the front office 
is doing as much, if not more work, but maybe getting less of the public credit. But I think that is definitely, they go hand in hand, but I think you've got to have a good amount of people working together collaboratively to figure things out to then allow you to have that same thing on the pitch. Indeed. Okay, so I think for this episode, we're probably going to go through maybe a couple org charts, maybe look at a couple of the different positions that are typically held within a front office. And it would make sense to go from top to bottom, would it not? So Taylor, typically sitting at the top, I think we either have an owner or a CEO, depending on structure. Yeah, I think that that is correct. And you're usually going to have an owner unless you are like Barcelona or something like that, in which all of the supporters, the socios are are owners technically and then they elect that president but most of the time at least in England you're going to have the one owner and then it's int- and then it kind of is up to the individual club how much that owner is going to be involved some are pretty hands on and want a lot of say some very much take a back seat to that CEO who then is kind of directing things and making the bigger decisions Indeed. So, Graham, if we're going to look at the top of the org chart, which I think is another American term, which I only became relatively familiar with with my time in the Mm. States, um, you sort of have the owner, the CEO, and then kind of a presidential role, and maybe at the top also a board in some instances. That's kind of where you're at the top of the hierarchy, right, Graham? Yeah, and I think it depends case to case what each of those roles entails. So there are clubs that will have an owner, a CEO, and a president, and the president is almost a almost a kind of ambassadorial role slightly. Um, you'll have clubs that have just an owner, and maybe that owner has a say in transfer. So at the moment, the new Chelsea owner, Todd Todd Bowley, he is he has a very practical role in the club's transfer activity. He's actually acting sporting director at the moment. But you look at a club like Manchester United; they have their owners who there's a, a degree of separation between them and even the board that they sit on where there'll be a CEO. So Ed Woodward from Manchester United was the, he was the, the de facto CEO. That wasn't actually his official title. He was something like vice executive chairman or something like that. But that was his, his day to day role. And you will have a board, as you say, that those people will sit on. You'll have directors on that, on that board. And this isn't too different to, any board that you would have at any company, because of course it might be unromantic to think about it, but at the at the elite level, certainly the big European clubs, they are companies, they are businesses, so they need to have a board of directors. Mm. Most commonly, a director on a football club board is a shareholder. So, for example, uh, Uzmanov was the who's the, the Russian billionaire. He was on the Everton board for a number of years as an investor. He owned a share of the club. He wasn't the he wasn't the majority shareholder. That is Farhad Moshiri. But he still had a say in how the club was run. That was until recently, I should clarify, until the the UK governments ended that relationship with Everton in that particular case. But he invested money in the club, and so he sat on the board as a director. And there is often a hierarchy among directors depending on their stake or influence at the club. But as I say, the, the idea is that they have a they have a say in the running of the of the club, whether that's as an investor, whether that's as one of the the bosses, as a CEO, a president, or even one of the owners, or an ambassadorial figure. Like to use Manchester United again as an example, Sir Alex Ferguson and Sir Bobby Charlton are both directors at Manchester United. I'm unclear. Maybe they do actually own some shares in Manchester United. I can't imagine it's a it's a huge number of shares, but they are they're basically there as legacy figures on that board. And I feel like at the top level of the game, the elite level of the game, those sort of figures are fairly common as well. Indeed. Um, and you mentioned Todd Bowley there coming in at Chelsea, which uh, some interesting news came out uh, a couple of days ago. Tom Glick, who was a director at Manchester City and who I personally worked for at Charlotte FC, uh, has been brought into Chelsea FC as, and I love this title, the yeah. president of business. 
the president of business, which sounds very broad, but it's sort of looking after all the non-sporting aspects of the club at a high level. My understanding is that he's kind of a, a replacement for Chelsea's director, Marina Granovskaya, who ran that kind of business executive side of things previously at Chelsea. You know, perhaps it'd be useful for me at this point to sort of give a rundown of the Chelsea, uh, the Charlotte FC org chart when I was when I was there, and it was a very basic org chart at the start. I can go through so. At the very top, as we've mentioned, you have an owner. That owner at Charlotte FC was David Tepper, who owns the Carolina Panthers as well. No board for this company because it's a one man um, who makes all the decisions at this particular institution. Below him, you had the aforementioned Tom Glick, who was the president of the whole group, Tepper Sports and Entertainment, which includes Charlotte FC and the Carolina Panthers and the Bank of America Stadium as well. Then below him... You had another presidential layer. That was uh, a guy called Nick Kelly when I was there, who was a club president. So looking after the club day to day, very hands on. Um, and and Ch- uh, Charlotte FC had a very flat org structure below that, because then you'd have all the leadership roles in um, commercial, in tickets, in HR, stadium ops, in community roles, and they'd be on the same level as the sporting roles, which would be a sporting director, an academy director and a technical director as well. So, Taylor, perhaps we should look at those. It's difficult because technical director, sporting director, director of football, general manager, almost every club has one of those. Famously, Manchester United lacked one for many years. Um, But we can talk about Man United's org chart and the head case they have been perhaps at some point as well, Taylor. (laughs) But um, those across organisations, depending where they are, are generally interchangeable terms, Taylor. Yeah, I, I think I think that is broadly how I see it. So if you look at Manchester United's current setup, they have a football director, they have a technical director, they have an assistant football director, and then they have director of football operations, head of academy, all terms that sound pretty similar. And I think that's where the org chart aspect of things is important because basically there needs to be a hierarchy so that decisions can be made theoretically more efficiently, more effectively, and with the necessary people involved. Uh, looking at the current one, like Darren Fletcher has an offshoot in between football director and assistant football director, which feels not quite as efficient as it could be. But ultimately, yeah, I think it splits down into you're going to have that sort of playing side of things uh, where maybe it's the manager is on equal footing to the football director or the club director or whatever it may be. Uh, but I think oftentimes they're then going to be below at least one or two people. And then for other teams, like I think Bayern Munich, you have a board that is, I think, four sort of operating members. I'm sure there's other uh, voting members and the like. But that board includes the CEO, includes the vice chairman, and then it includes two directors who do a wide variety of things are responsible for a wide variety of things. And I think that way you have uh, lots of spokes underneath those roles, but it still is much more centralized and I would say streamlined. Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the sporting side of the org structure and also the non-sporting side to really get on to the, uh, the folks who get their hands dirty day to day at a soccer club. We'll be back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Soccer 101, welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about uh, technical directors, sporting directors, directors of footballs and general managers. Graham, I think uh, one thing I should note when I mentioned Charlotte FC structure is that there was a sporting director and a technical director. Yeah. And that's quite common in many clubs. So the sporting director, which you could equate to an American equivalent as a general manager, would be the person who kind of puts the team together, builds the team, does the deals to actually bring the players in. Whereas a technical director will be more focused literally on the technical aspects of the team, the philosophy, how it plays and and that kind of thing, Graham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is the general idea. And obviously it, it changes on a case-by-case basis from club to club. And these are maybe the two that are the most difficult to define because technical director, I think we've covered this already, but technical director, sporting director, all these terms, can. there's a lot of overlap. And so you go to a club like Manchester United where Darren Fletcher is the technical director and he is also he also seems to have a coaching role as, as part of that job where he's down on the touchline and I'm not entirely sure what his, his job is. But you go to somewhere like Barcelona where uh, I know maybe we shouldn't be pointing to their front office as anything good really at the moment but I think there is a clearer distinction in their in their front office certainly with the technical director so at the moment their technical director is Jordi Cruyff the son of Johan Cruyff and his job he doesn't really have a say in the transfers of the club that's very much decided by Joan Laporta the president and Xavi Hernandez and the recruitment staff there but his job is basically just to oversee the club philosophy as a whole make sure that the academy and the youth ranks and the first team are all sort of playing in a similar way. He's basically there to instill certain principles in the club as a whole on the sporting side of things. And as I say, the sporting director, generally speaking, they're charged with transfers and contracts and building out the first team squad. And some clubs will see everything that I've just said about the technical director. They will see that remit under the job of the of, of the sporting director as well, they'll maybe expand that role. But at the, at the very, very biggest clubs like Barcelona, like Real Madrid, like those sort of clubs, the top five to ten clubs, they do tend to separate those jobs out. And the technical director job does tend to be slightly different to the sporting director. And then, of course, you have the academy director as well, who would maybe in some hierarchies actually work below the technical director because mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the technical director that is handing down the principles to the academy. That's that's quite right. And that's how it was at Charlotte FC as well, Graham. The technical director would, um, well, the academy director would report to the technical director. There were two other directorial positions I didn't mention, which was academy director and scouting director. Um, scouting, obviously, is fairly obvious what it does. But Taylor, um, it, it, many clubs, the academy director, the academy is almost run. I'm not, I'm not going to say as a separate business, but almost as a separate line. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it doesn't quite fit the same way into the business as so the first team does. They're kept separate, but also have the same philosophy philosophy uh, tied together by the technical director. Yeah, exactly. And I think usually, again, I'm going with like the, the Manchester United one here because the Athletic were kind enough to like really lay out the entire org structure and how it has evolved. But that head of the academy usually is going to be reporting to either the director of football or the technical director or sporting director, whichever sort of term they're going with for that one. They're usually going to have one person that they're reporting to. And then I think in the ideal scenario, they have a connection, a parallel connection to a person on the sporting side who's more involved in the first team. And so then you have sort of that communication open to be able to move players from the academy to the first team more effectively, to have those mm-hmm. conversations about what they should be working on, what they've been working on, who's excelling, who's regressing. Uh, so you want the kind of dialogue, but in terms of who you're reporting to, who you are accountable to, I think the fewer people, the better within reason. Because if you have 
five different bosses, Office Space laid this out pretty effectively. You're getting five different memos, five different briefings, five different people's visions. And I think that clouds what you're being asked to do. If you are sort of just given license to oversee the academy, that is your job. Here are the things that we would like you to work on. I think it just simplifies the mission statement that much more. Exactly so. All right, guys, I think we've covered the sporting side of things and the upper leadership side of things. I think the other part of the organization we haven't really looked at is non-sporting roles. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but at the end of the day, soccer clubs have to have their bills paid. And predominantly, it's the non-sporting roles. Not Barcelona. (laughs) <laughs> well, we can get to them shortly, Graham, but um, it's it's those non-sporting roles that will pay the bills. So uh, as an example with with, um, with Charlotte FC, it would be the ticketing department and it would be the sales department who would be bringing sponsorships. Those are the guys who are, you know, keeping the lights on that allows the non-sporting side, Graham, to do their thing. Yeah, absolutely. And this is when you see a picture of a front office. So I'm thinking in my mind, if anyone has seen a picture of Manchester City's headquarters at the the City football campus or whatever that's called, the Etihad campus, um, it's a gigantic building. It's a massive open plan office. And the majority of those people in, in, in the, on those desks will be working on the non-sporting side of the club. They will be working in communications, which is maybe the role that I am most familiar with. I have a lot of friends who work in, in uh, work as communications and PR staff for, for, for football clubs, maybe even one on this podcast that we're recording right now. Um, I also did a little bit of comms for Sterling Albion. Yes, very low level, but it was one of the first things I did out of university. So a little bit of firsthand experience as well. And on a day-to-day basis, their role is to release things like press statements, liaise with members of the media in terms of setting up interviews, that sort of thing. And in a, in a bigger picture sense, communication staff, to focus on them a little bit here, they are charged with controlling the message put out by a club. So that that could extend beyond football. For example, I know some people who work as comm staff at Motherwell, and that club really focuses on helping people in the local community with mental health struggles, and the message that they communicate often revolves around this. So it's even in comms, it's not just about we've signed this player from this club. There's There's more to it than that, and I think you can apply that that ethos of there's more to it than just the football to a number of different jobs in the non-sporting side of a club. Indeed. Taylor, I think if we're going to go through those non-sporting roles, I think Graham's covered a lot of them. Communications, marketing, uh, retail, mm-hmm. HR. Stadium ops is an important one. The guys who actually run the match day production, that's a very big part of a, of a team. Uh, the finance guys, the boring guys who look at Excel all day, who we all have to have those. And things like partnerships as well. Mm. Now, Manchester United, Taylor, as a Man United fan, you'll know that partnerships can mean sales partnerships or it can mean community partnerships. It can mean many things. But for Man United, it's um, your official tomato juice partnership in Asia and the official traction engine partnership in Australasia. Singapore noodle sponsorships. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly those kind of things. So there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, w- one that you let you mentioned there, Ryan, is is like stadium ops. I think that is one that often gets overlooked as having its own sort of whole channel because thinking about not just the stadium itself, but the the like the the pitch itself within the stadium, but everything that goes into match day preparedness. But then on the training side, the academy fields, everything that goes into the groundskeeping there, and then the club facilities, the athletic facilities. That's an entire branch of decision making that has to happen and you usually are going to have that separated off by a facilities manager or something like that. And it is interesting that you will have 
community, uh, you'll have sort of sponsorship offices, you'll have partnerships and finance, and you would assume there's a lot of sort of, uh, sort of cross interest there. And that's where I feel like, again, looking at Bayern Munich for a moment, they have the director for sport and then they have the director for, uh, sponsorship events, brand management, new media and IT, merchandising and licenses, international relations and marketing and PR for the Allianz Arena. Uh, that is many, many different titles. And you would assume then that reporting to that director is a probably either vice director or assistant director or something, uh, of sponsorship and one of events and one of brand management and one of new media and one of merchandising. And I think that is, as as bureaucratic as that sounds, to me, that's how you want things to work because you have people focused on their dedicated field, but reporting up to a person who has familiarity with the broader picture. It's like it's like you're focused on learning your part of the script, and then you have the script supervisor who's responsible for everybody's part in the script. And and I think that makes things easier because it makes things more digestible, and people are I think able to kind of focus on their specific tasks. And ideally, I think that's how it works up the line to continue with Manchester United, where you run into problems is that by all accounts, Ed Woodward heavily involved in these uh, sponsorship and partnership aspects of things. And so it becomes much more, well, Ed's going to make all the decisions. So we just got to let him do what he wants to do. And I think it removes a lot of input, a lot of back and forth, a lot of dialogue that helps facilitate some of those deals and really flesh them out. I think Charlotte, probably another example of that, where if you have one owner or one individual who ultimately is making all the decisions as a pro- opposed to just approving decisions or going along with stuff because you're an expert, you've been working on this, that seems about right. I think that's where things can get disrupted a little bit. Indeed, yes. Uh, and uh, to go back to stadium, um, having worked at Bank of America Stadium, uh, a stadium which has two different sports and concerts in it as well it's fascinating talking to the stadium most people i love talking to the folks who like run the big screen or the people who um you know ma- uh, maintain the field like bank of america stadium this week as we record brought in real grass for uh, uh, for the field they had a garth brooks concert the weekend and they brought in real grass just for one game for chelsea which is an unbelievable operation to get that much turf in for one game so there's low you got to respect all these people who do the kind of stadium stuff we don't really think about in a team um graham we both support fan-owned teams so we should probably talk about how that kind of thing fits into structure when there are fan ownerships when a club is public so it's got shareholders and when there are socios in the case of a team like barcelona who they're not going to sit within the org structure graham but they do have a role when it comes to like an agm and things like that yeah, so I will speak personally about Sterling Albion and what their uh, their front office structure is. Sterling Albion, very small club, so doesn't really have the the level of people that some of the bigger clubs we've we've mentioned, Manchester United, Barcelona, those, Manchester City, those sort of clubs. But there's a there's a trust board which sits separate to the club, and the trust board is essentially what controls the 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 shares and the stake of the 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 fans own in the club and there are a lot of votes and the um, the people that are uh, elected to the trust board um are as i say elected so they're put there by the fans and then basically the trust board has their role is to communicate certain things and the wishes of fans to the club board which sits separately and the idea is that it's meant to be kind of democratic we actually don't have 
elections. So that's that's a flaw. I think that's a flaw in the, in the way Sterling Albion is run, and that's maybe different from Barcelona, where the socios certainly have a say in who the president is. It's an, it's an election, so there's a, a whole presidential campaign every four or five years. We we don't have any elections at Sterling Albion, but the idea is that basically the 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 chairman of the club who sits on the club board is basically put there by the trust board, and between those two boards, there is a level of cooperation. Basically, that what is the the reason it for that structure is you don't want to get into the Fleetwood Town or was it Fleetwood Town? What was the Ebbs Fleet Town? Ebbs yeah. Fleet Town, who were one of the first fan owned teams in the UK and their club board was essentially, they voted on everything. They voted on team selections. Who was going to be the captain? Should we sign this player from this club? And obviously that doesn't work at all. I think anyone could have predicted that. So you, you try to separate, you try to embolden people who have the expertise to sit in the club board, but still kind of have a democratic process where they are representing the wishes of the fans. Indeed. And I'll say Wimbledon is a very similar setup as well as a fan-owned club, Graham, in, in that it has a trust that makes uh, most of the decisions there. Uh, finally, Taylor, should we have a little look at examples of maybe teams who have a good front office setup? Maybe conversely, Taylor, if you have one, a bad setup. A weird one that I feel like is a maybe a popular figure is like i think ted lasso is sort of a ceo of AF- afc richmond uh like it, and that's what i think initially tripped me up about that t- uh, that, about that program is like he's not really a manager because he doesn't do a ton of training or tactical management or anything like that he usually leaves that to coach beard or, or nate and and to me that's like basically him delegating to his manager and then he is the one who's like sort of reporting to the ceo the owner uh but then he's also running the day-to-day operations but in a very sort of hands-on but i'm not the decision maker <laughs> he's kind of empowering a lot of people and i think that is sort of what the ceo ideally is meant to do is you're empowering the people who work below you to come up with new approaches to come up or fine-tune ideas or really stick to their guns when they know that this is going to work or they feel this is going to work and you sort of back them because they're the employee that you've either brought in or you are tasked with uh, working with and having a relationship with and I think so the clubs that have that sort of structure in place where it's very much a collaborative effort of working together towards finding solutions that work for everyone. I think that is going to be your ideal. And I think having people who can sort of have this overarching vision for how things should go or a board who have that vision and kind of know the identity of the club and know how they want to function within that identity. Those are the ones that I think in my mind have the most success. So uh, Bayern Munich would be an example of that. Ajax would be an example of that. When you have a philosophy baked into your team it may or into your organization you sort of know the dna that you're working within or that is kind of guiding what you're doing and i think that makes everybody much more likely to be on the same page whereas if you have different appointees and hirings from different ownership groups or different ceos and then you have uh, positions created that maybe don't quite have the clarity that we would like or the transparency we would like i think that's where you start running into power struggles and more obstacles to uh, having a streamlined communication method. I wasn't expecting you to bring up Ted Lasso in yeah, this right? episode, but here, here we are. Here we are. And I mean, like, right? Like, but think about it. For, like, that's what he does is he basically, he talks to every single person in, in, in the club at various points. He brings in new people somewhat begrudgingly if maybe you need uh, sports science or sports psychology. Like, I think mm. that's what a CEO is meant to do. So in, in a lot of ways, I think that's kind of the role he does. And that's how I envision a good one. 
He bakes cookies too, of course. Also that. Also that. Yeah, team morale. Also important. (laughs) Indeed. Graham, any examples? Good, bad uh, setups? Uh, Good, I would say Manchester City. Obviously, City have an advantage in terms of just their sheer wealth, but they also put in place a very good front office. They took Mm. a lot of people from Barcelona a number of years ago, people like Ferran Soriano, uh, Tukichi Berenstein. I'm never able to say his name. It's been about 10 years now. Anyway, um, yeah, their revenue has also grown a lot in recent years, so I think they have some good commercial staff in place as well. And pretty much similar, I would say similar about Liverpool. They have owners who have been willing to invest in projects like the redevelopment of Anfield, but you don't really get the sense that they're taking many key decisions on the football side of things. Instead, they leave it to sporting directors like Michael Edwards. I know he is he's just left left Liverpool, but has has kind of leg he's left a pretty decent legacy behind. And I think they also have one of the best commercial sides. Their sponsorship revenue has, I think, tripled over the last five to ten years through deals with Nike and Expedia. They've just grown and grown and grown. And another club I would mention with a good front office is Sevilla almost purely because of Monchi, uh, who is so yeah. effective at building football teams, one of the best directors of football around. He's been at Sevilla with a brief two-year period at Roma in between, but he's been at Sevilla for about 10 years now. And the fact that Sevilla are just able to compete with the big clubs in Spain for so long, they've won European trophies, of course, and it's just testament to the to the good work that they do on the sporting side. Bad, bad front offices, examples of bad front offices. I don't think I'm going to surprise anyone here. We've mentioned them a couple of times already. Manchester United's front office has been rotten for some time. For years, That their biggest problem was they essentially didn't have much of a front office, at least on the sporting side. They didn't have a sporting director or technical director. They had owners who barely seemed to care, who sucked millions out of the club every year without ever putting anything in. They had a CEO who was a bit of an egomaniac. Changes now have been made, and I think Richard Arnold is much more of a delegator they do finally have a technical director and a sporting director so maybe maybe uh, better times are coming for Manchester United in terms of their front office but they are a long long way behind a lot of their rivals and another bad uh, front office I'd say is PSG yep. um, they have all the all the money in the world <laughs> they I guess on the commercial side and the sponsorship side of things they've they, they've, they've done some good stuff obviously they had that that the Air Jordan collaboration, which I think made them quite a lot of money. But on the football side of things, they gave a lot of power to a man who didn't really deserve a lot of power, Leonardo. He made a mess of that squad. You have Luis Campos coming into that that team now, who is, who is regarded as one of the best sporting directors. So similar to Manchester United, maybe things are going to change. But again, PSG, have a, a, they've got a bit of a mess to clean up after the last five years. Yeah, some excellent nominations there. And I think it's interesting to consider the dichotomy in Manchester you brought up there as well, Graham, with Man United being dysfunctional and, you know, showing the value or the the value of the lack of having good leadership and good organization, whereas Manchester City, who've been building that project, uh, I use the word project, which I don't like using, but that's what it is, uh, for, for, you know, for, for since 2008 and with one vision in mind, basically building a club for the coach they have now long before they had him in getting his former teammate in Bajiristan in and, and Soriano and everything like that and having a really superb non-sporting side as well so yeah lessons to be learned I'm not enjoying fans. this episode anymore this isn't fun for me uh <laughs> right. yeah Graham I think the Leonardo shout is a great one and that's a great example of you can have all the money and plenty of people who are like working together in lockstep to make smart decisions to create the best team. But if you have one person who's overseeing all of that, who seems to be a bit of an egomaniac, who will visit, like actually fight people, I think that can really limit how effective uh, your club is going to be. Yeah, 
Maybe a little bit. Lessons learned in Paris, Tete. And lessons learned, hopefully, in Soccer 101 today. That has been Front Offices. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much, as always, for your contributions. Thank you, my friend. Graham Ruthven, well done, sir. Thank you, Ryan Billy. Listener, thank you for joining us on this intrepid journey. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, catch you later. Listener.